HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, sharing nothing but the best in whole grain nutrition and committed to their mission of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country to offering scholarships to high school students, is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member now. Hello, this is Dana Cowan your host of Speaking Broadly, a show where you can get a behind-the-scenes look at the food world through extraordinary meals and extraordinary people. On today's show, I'm excited to have one of the winners of this year's Food & Wine Best New Chefs. And also, same person, a woman who went from culinary school to superstar chef in an astonishing seven years. That is honestly the fastest rise I have ever ever heard of. But first, I'm going to tell you a little bit about an amazing meal that I had in California where I was traveling this past week. I went to Napa Valley and I went to the restaurant at Meadowood. When I got there, I was seated in this very elegant, serene dining room and the the chef comes up to the table and he says, oh, Dana, it's so good to see you. What are you doing in Napa? And I said, I am here only to have this dinner with you. I went all the way to to Napa Valley because Chris Costa is such an extraordinary chef. And the meal that followed indeed was mind-blowing. I'll just describe a couple of the dishes to you. One of my favorites was a squab that comes out of the kitchen baked in clay. The server takes a hammer and knocks into the clay and then opens the clay like a shell and the steam comes out and reveals a very pale, not terribly attractive squab. But that's okay because then they whisk it away and they cut it 
up in the kitchen, they sear it, they do all kinds of magical things to it to bring it back later as a course. But before they do that, they bring over a beautiful cut glass vessel with silver on the top and silver on the bottom and a candle lighting it. And inside, there's broth, the most incredible squab broth that they pour into a clay shell that looks like it was harvested from the ocean. And they pour it in, the steam comes up. And so you have the, the soup of the bird before you have the bird itself. Another one of my favorite dishes was the dessert. It was a beautiful panna cotta with the tiniest little pine cones you've ever seen, like an eighth of the size of your pinky nail. And it's candied. So it's like this little crunchy element. And then there are flower petals. And it's just what a beautiful and sweet way to end a meal. I had 15 courses overall. Uh, I went into the kitchen afterwards and saw the meticulous way in which they mark off each course. Each person, of course, ha- has a, um, a menu there. And there's a pen for each course or for each person, which I just thought was an amazing way to be sure you were keeping track of how long it took for each course to come out and when each course was finished. So if you're ever in Napa Valley or you want to take a trip to have a 15-course tasting menu in a beautiful restaurant, I'm going to recommend Chris Costow's The Restaurant at Meadowood. And now for my terrific guest today, Angie Marr. Angie is the executive chef and owner of the Beatrice Inn in the West Village in Manhattan. Welcome, Angie. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy to have you in this seat opposite me to talk about um, your life and and your world of food and the, the Beatrice Inn. So when I think about your menu, I think with all the menus that I've seen, You've managed to create something that reflects you more than most menus, I would say, reflect the individual behind them, particularly when they're so meat heavy. Mm. I mean, you have the milk fed pork shoulder, you have a 45 dry aged day dried. Say that. 45 day dry aged burger. Yeah. Burger <laughs> that you're really, really famous for. A tomahawk. Um, so. And yet, the restaurant is feminine, and the dishes have personality. I don't always put together meat and personality. Tell me about your thoughts on meat. Well, I mean, clearly I love it. (laughs) Clearly I love it. I, um, you know, I think what's really important about our menu is that everything on there, like you say, it has personality, um, but it's because everything on there we're tremendously passionate about, and we're, like, excited to be cooking, um... You know, and I've, I've, I've definitely said it before, but our our restaurant isn't there to placate. It's it's there to, you know, I want people to come in. I want people to cast away whatever reservations that they have and just really eat with abandon and um, and really indulge in the pleasure of being there. And, so, and that's what I think it's about. Okay, so there's two things that I'm really interested in: the not placating. Mm. You th- this moment in time, frankly, there's. Vegetables everywhere. everywhere. I know you don't like vegetables. Yeah. Um, there's salads everywhere. Mm-hmm. Don't you don't seem terribly interested. Mm-hmm. And it's almost a post steakhouse moment. Right. 
Where did you get that confidence to say, I don't really actually care what the world is doing? Because that's what the restaurant says to me. Right. Um, you know, I think it's because I believe in our food ardently, you know, and I believe in, in the vision of that restaurant. And but like, how did you know yeah. that people would, like, how did you know they would come? How did you know that, that they would pay that money? I, I didn't. I didn't at all. You know, I mean, I, I think it's, it's definitely a gamble. And I think that when, when I was opening that restaurant and, you know, my, my cousin is my business partner and she grew up the way I did. She, you know, we had bunk beds together when we were kids. Um, and you know, I, I was like trying to explain to her, I said, you know, this is what I want to do with this menu. And she was like, right, but what, what are the ladies going to eat? And I was like, they're going to eat this. They're going to eat this because it makes sense, you know? And, um, you know, and, and, and she got it because she, you know, she didn't grow up the same way. So she was like always, of course, tremendously supportive. But, you know, I think really the attitude that we took was, look, we're going to cook our food unapologetically, you know, no holds bar, take you out at your knees and, 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 you know, really go for it. And if people don't respond to it, then we can assess it then. But we just went for it. I guess yeah. having a business partner who is related to you, who adores you, who supports you, mm -hmm. um, is a really good way to yeah. start with not yeah, placating. I think it's the it's only like, way. <laughs> look, if I can convince you and we're in this together, uh, we're the only ones we have to please. Right. And if no one comes, I guess we can figure that we out later. We can figure it out later. Yeah. You know, we, we could figure it out later. And, and fortunately, we, uh, fortunately it, was, it was fine and everybody loved it. So it's okay. Okay. And so then what about this indulgence? I mean, it is almost like... You use the word primal or yeah. medieval or, yeah. you know, the setting is so uh, it's in a West Village townhouse. Mm -hmm. The rooms are clubby and small. They have mm -hmm. personality. So it doesn't feel like you're in a right. medieval chamber. Right. But you certainly your size. Things are a huge size. Right. Um, they're for big people or big personalities and mm -hmm. big ideas. Mm -hmm. And uh does anyone ever say, can I have a smaller portion? Like, <laughs> does, do people finish well, we, their plates? I yeah. really want to know this. Yeah. I mean, well, we have... Um, oh, there are doggy bags galore. There's definitely doggy bags. There's definitely doggy bags. But, you know, what I love about the menu is that we have a, a large portion of it that is, you know, is meant for one person. Because I wanted it to be where you could come in, you could sit at the bar or just have a table for one, um, which is what I often do, you know, when I when I do go out to eat is I, I like to eat by myself or I sit at the bar. And I wanted to make it so you could you could do that and just, you know, have a, a lighter portion or you could come in with like, you know, six people and eat the whole menu. Uh -huh. And I mean, and, a lighter portion is really relative here. Yeah, it's, it's it is relative. <laughs> <laughs> What's the lightest thing on your menu? Uh, you know, I really I love the Cote de Boeuf. I think the Cote de That's the lightest perfect. thing on your menu. Yeah. Okay. Or maybe the tartare. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm hoping that listeners are really understanding Um Exactly what you're going for. Yeah, and let's go it's, big or go home. You win. Yeah. Big baby. Okay. <laughs> so you come from a family that has been involved with food, so it's not a complete shock mm -mm. that you ended up here. Your father, uh, who's Chinese-American, seemed like he was a great cook. There were Sunday Amazing. roasts. Uh, so it seems, though, that the person who made the biggest mark in food in your family before you... Uh, was your aunt yeah. Ruby Chow? Yeah. Can you tell us some stories about her growing up and what inspiration she may have been for yeah. you? Yeah. You know, so um, my father always says because my my auntie Ruby and I have the same birthday. Exactly. You're Gemini, so we're Gemini. What's what's your birthday? Uh, I'm June sixth. Yeah. 
So I, I just had my birthday. Um, but, she, but so she and I have the exact same birthday. And, you know, growing up, my dad always said, he's like, oh, my God, you're exactly like your Auntie Ruby. Um, so what did that mean? You know, just uh, she had no filter. You know, I, I, don't, I don't think I have a filter. Um, but you know, she always spoke her mind. She was fearless. She was she was amazing. She was really really uh, inspirational woman. And um, you know, it for her it was like always all about family. And you know, she kept the family together. And um, you know, my dad grew up during the depression, so it, it was like a lot of hard times for them. So, what did they go through as a family that you think may have? had a lasting impact? Uh, well, you know, what they went through as a family was, I think, uh, tremendously important to, you know, what I do today and, and how I run my business today. Um, you know, they are, my dad is one of 10 children. Um, you know, he was born in 1927. Um, so grew up you know, during the depression, um, his father died when he was three, uh, his mother died after that, um, my Aunt Ruby and my Auntie Mary were in New York, actually, because they were the older siblings. Um, and when his mother passed away, they moved back uh, to Seattle to keep the family together, to keep all the younger children together. But, you know, they had no money. They had no money. And so, you know, he literally tells me, you know, stories because he was one of the youngest, that he was going to Chinatown. They lived in Chinatown and they would move like every couple months because hmm. they just they had no money. So they would go from place to place. But all they ten would, of them, all ten of them. Yeah. And they would she would literally my auntie Ruby would send the younger kids to the back doors of the Chinese restaurants. and They would knock on the doors for the scraps. And that's how they ate. So. You know, um, and, and, you know, and then, and they really, they kept the family together, which is amazing in those times. That's you know? extraordinary. And, and quite an accomplishment, really. It is. Uh, it's huge. It's huge. So, so, you know, so, so the way that translates to now and the way I was raised is that, you know, growing up, we were always told, you know, you do business, you do it with a family, you make money, you make it with a family, you find ways to bring each other up and grow each other because that is what you do. Um, and so, you know, so my, my business partner is my cousin, um, and my brothers, uh, they, they have a business together as well. Uh, they're not, they're not in the culinary field, but they, uh, they do brand management. So they, and they help you. I know help me. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's fantastic because, you know, who can you trust except for your family? And it's, although there are probably people who would say, <laughs> say yeah. the exact opposite, right? Like stay right. away from any businesses yeah. with their family. I'm curious about what you say about, you know, um, going and getting the scraps and really starting with no money. No money. Because, uh, you know, you, have you taken that aesthetic into the yeah. kitchen itself? Absolutely. And uh, what can you tell me about that? Well, so I think it translates to, you know, what, what we cook in our kitchen, um, you know, we, we have almost no waste in our kitchen, uh, you know, which is, which is amazing. And uh, we keep a very low food cost for a restaurant that serves only meat. Um, how do you do that? It's because nothing gets wasted. Mm -hmm. Nothing gets wasted. So walk me through like something that would start big and then how it doesn't get wasted along the way. Yeah. You know, um, for example, uh, you know, we do a ton of like, dry aging, obviously. And with that, you've got a lot of waste because you've got all the trim, you've got the fat, you've got all of that, you know, and with any of the meats that so you're going to have waste there because when you're butcher, that's what it is. Um, but we take all of the scraps, you know, there's the goes into stock, all the fat gets rendered. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't 
don't cook with a lot of butter. Um, I cook with animal fat. So, you know, if it's beef, it's getting picked up in beef fat. If it's lamb, it's getting picked up in lamb fat. You know, a lot of our our uh, sets that, you know, go with um, those dishes are getting picked up in the fat, the respective fat from the animal that it came from. So, and picked up meaning? Meaning like, you know, like sautéed and, you know, all of that stuff. But we're doing it from that animal. Um, you know, and so so there's, there's really no waste, which is, it's important. I think it's important to honor, you know, um, the so life the of that animal. the bones go somewhere? The bones, yep. Stocks, Stocks, everything, yeah. you know. Um, so there's a lot of bones in your restaurant. A lot of bones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we, uh, but you know, we and we pride ourselves on that because it's. I think it's important, especially you know, because um, that's you know not only how I was raised, but also uh, you know we want to honor that animal because it's it's as the life, and we want to make sure that none of it is is going to waste. Um, it's just so important. And let's um, let's talk about the animals for a minute because mm-hmm. I know that you're very very interested in beef. Yeah. And what can you? So what have you learned about the animal? What are what? Mm-hmm. Where does your beef come from? Uh, we were talking about international yeah. beef, different flavor profiles. The notion of uh, beef as terroir. Yeah. What does that mean, beef as terroir? So you know, it's really interesting because I, you know, the majority of our beef that we get um, is obviously, uh, you know, it's it's all from the states. Um, I do deal with some Japanese beef. We get some A five Kobe in from Japan, which I love. Um, but you know, uh, pretty much everyone that you talk to, um, you know, we use Angus beef. Um, I, and why I, is that? Because it's, that's what we can get right now. Okay. You know, in the States, that's, that's literally, we can get that. We can get, um, you know, Japanese and we can get Australian and that's, that's really it. Um, which I love that, you know, though, I, I mean, I love Angus beef. I, you know, obviously I buy from Pat Lafreda, um, and I think it's delicious. Um, but I've been traveling a lot over the past year and a half, two years and really getting acquainted with other breeds of beef. Um, you know, how they're raised, what they eat. And, you know, we look at wine and we look at wine in terms of terroir, you know, what was the soil? Um, how far away was it from the sea? You know, how many dead Romans are in the soil? You know, <laughs> things like that. All of that affects the taste of the wine. You know, how, when was it harvested? What was it aged in? How long was it aged? Um, so what's been really fascinating for me is spending time with butchers, um, you know, in Europe and, and seeing what they're doing. Because and what are they doing? Do they cut differently? Do they, is the feed different? Well, is the all of the above, all of the above. I mean, just the way that meat is butchered in France is completely different than the way we butcher it in the States. And how is that? It, it just the way they take apart the muscles. It's, it's completely different. Um, and does that have an, that has an effect on flavor? What's the effect on it, flavor? You know, I think it more has, a, it's just more of like a technique. I think really okay. when we talk about flavor, um, it's, it's the animal itself. So, uh, you know, I, I spent some time with Yves Marie Le Bourdignac, who's a, a butcher in Paris. Um, and I think he's brilliant. Um, and, and, you know, you, you look at the beef that he's got there and 
I mean, we're talking beef that is, you know, seven, eight, nine-year-old dairy cows um, versus American beef, which is slaughtered at 24 months. So, you know, just the age on the beef in general is... That must it's radically change the profile. It, yeah, completely different. So can you describe the two different tastes? Yeah, well, so, you know, beef in France, it's obviously, it's all, it's all grass-fed, um, but they've also, uh, you know, the, the cows, they've birthed cows there. They've birthed at least two calves before they're slaughtered. So that is completely different in and of itself. I, you know, and I've said multiple times that I, I'm actually not a big fan of grass-fed beef um, in the States, but I will eat and I love grass-fed beef when it's in Europe mm. because it's completely different. Um, it's It truly is a different animal. I was, I literally just got back from um, Ireland on Monday and I was spending time um, with a butcher there uh, by the name of Morris Kettle. And we went to Wicklow and we looked at all the different breeds of beef that he's got there. I mean, he's got Piedmontaire, Blonde Acoutine from France. He's got Dexter. He's got Red Devon. Um, he's got Galloway cows. And looking at all these different breeds and then also, you know, he was explaining to me, um, you know, the time of year that it is right now. And this, you know, a certain clover only grows during this time of year. And in in the fall, they're in the lowlands. In the winter, they're in the highlands. You know, it's completely different. And, and you know, so looking at beef in terms of terroir, you know, like in America, you know, again, 24 months in America versus seven, eight, nine years um, in Europe, you know, I, I recently, when I was, when I was in Europe, um, just this past weekend, I had the privilege of trying a 12 year old Galloway cow, 12 years old is insane. That's very hard to imagine. It was insane. And, and, you know, grass fed, it's all like, these are working animals. Mm-hmm. These are working animals. It was 12 years old and it had been finished on the grain from Guinness. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, obviously, you know, if we are what we eat, it's like, you know, beef is... Your drunken steak. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like, it's going to be completely different, you know, depending on what it ate and how old it was. And and I find that intriguing. Wow. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick commercial break, and then we'll be back with Angie Marr of the Beatrice Inn. Stay with us. It's Kathy Irway, the host of Eat Your Words. Today I'm here with Camilla Salisbury, author of Bob's Red Mill Everyday Gluten-Free Cookbook, 281 Delicious Whole Grain Recipes. We're going to get to the bottom of this gluten-free craze. So why aren't people eating gluten and what does gluten-free really mean? 
Well, there are two main reasons why um, people are deciding to go gluten-free these days. And the first one is really serious. It's for people who have celiac disease, and it's a pretty serious um, condition. But then there is also a growing number of people with gluten, gluten intolerance or gluten sensitivity, and they're trying out um, gluten-free diets um, because they find that eating foods without gluten just makes them feel better. Okay, got it. But what actually makes something gluten-free? Well, what makes something gluten-free is essentially that it doesn't have any um, of the protein gluten in it. And a lot of people are surprised to learn that uh, many grains do not contain gluten, when in fact just a very small number of grains do. Does anyone offer truly gluten-free options? Um, well, Bob's Red Mill really understands gluten-free options, um, and that means they separate their grains um, during the manufacturing process, and so they're testing each batch at every step of the way for purity to ensure that it's gluten-free. So when it says on the package that it's gluten-free, you can be assured that it is gluten-free. All right, so gluten-free listeners out there craving some steel-cut oats can pick up a pack of Bob's Red Mill and rest assured you're getting the real deal. Learn more about Bob's Red Mill and all the gluten-free products that they offer at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Welcome back. This is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly. Today, my guest is Angie Marr. Angie, I want to hear about your career. It has been extraordinary. And I kind of want to start at the beginning, which was commercial real estate in LA. Yeah. Uh, How did you end up doing commercial real estate in LA? I know you're from Seattle, so it's not even, it was your hometown. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, you know, I I think I was trying to leave Seattle by the age of seven. (laughs) (laughs) I had already decided. decided Was it the weather? What was it? I, you know, I had already decided it wasn't for me. It was Uh like one of those things where I, you know, I was, uh, I was in Paris uh, with my family and it was my first trip to Europe and I was seven years old and I, I, banged on the glass like I had a speech and I was like telling my father I was like so I will be staying here and it's good to see you all and he was like no get on the plane (laughs) so I think from that moment forward I I, kind of decided I was uh I was uh, Seattle wasn't for me um but you know I I mean I love the city I, I go home and visit often um, but I, okay. So LA, LA. Yeah. I was, I was in LA. I, uh, got into business, um, and I was in commercial real estate. I worked for Collier's there for years and, um, you know, I, I, I had a great life, you know, I was, I was traveling everywhere. Um, I was making a lot of money and I, you know, I was, I was really enjoying it, but it wasn't really like soul satisfying. Um, so, you know, it got to that point where I was like, I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. I don't want to be in an office. I don't want to, uh, I don't want to do this. I'm not, not being fulfilled right now. Um, quit my job, um, took my savings, traveled, uh, went to East Africa, went to Spain, um, and, and, you know, really soul searched. And, um, and you found yourself in Sevilla. I found myself in Sevilla. <laughs> yeah. Found myself in Sevilla. Um, you know, I, I really, I was like, God, you know, I should be cooking. Why am I not cooking? You know? Um, so I, you know, moved back, like came back to kept I traveling. A, I mean, I just, yeah. I've heard you say that. I'm just curious. Like, what does that mean? Like you woke up and you're like, oh, I should be cooking, but were you cooking all along? Had you been cooking alongside well, yeah, your dad? I mean, you know? I, yeah. I mean, I grew up like, I grew up on a step stool next to my dad in the kitchen, um, you know, cooking and, and, you know, 
know, my cousin, uh, you've had my, my chicken liver pate Delicious. at the restaurant. Yeah. So the blackberry compote that we serve alongside of that chicken liver pate, my cousin and I, cause I grew up in Seattle. So blackberries grow like weeds out there. And, um, my cousin and I used to climb over the fence. We used to pick all the blackberries, come back in and we would make blackberry jam with my dad and we put it on our pancakes on Sunday. And this is the same blackberry jam that we do today wow. at the restaurant. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I was grew up in the kitchen and, and, you know, as a, as a young adult was entertaining all the time and, and Ooh, what was your party dish? Uh, you know, that milk braised pork shoulder. Okay. That yeah. is your dish. Man. That's like my dish. <laughs> That's like a jam. <laughs> that has carried you through a lot. Yeah. It's carried you through entertaining this restaurant. Yes. I mean, we'll talk about your next restaurant. I don't know what you're going to do because clearly these family recipes, they are living on your menu right they now. They are. Yeah, yeah, they are. Okay. It's so the, so yeah, so the, the pork shoulder and that plum tart. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So you, um, you came back and you went to culinary school. Yeah. Uh, in Moved New York, to New York, yeah. Which I know that culinary uh, school was not your thing. Not my thing. No, not my thing. Did you find it um, boring or? You know, I, I for me, I just I felt like, and and you know, I think I probably was going to culinary school at a time where it was like started to shift. You know, to because I, I mean, I have a lot of opinions on culinary school, and I think that it's. I think that the industry itself is changing um, and the people who want to get into the industry right now are changing. And I think I was probably like, you know, toward the beginning or mid of that, that shift, you know, the shift to what the shift to, to a lot of people getting into this industry, not really under fully understanding what kind of a commitment it is. Um, you know, I, I actually don't know anybody that I graduated with that is in this industry now. Wow. Yeah. So do you feel like they were doing it as dilettantes or they, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't know. We can I, cruise right over that. Yeah. Um, your list of first jobs, though, is incredibly impressive. So Thank how you. did you choose uh, the places you wanted to work, and why did they choose you? Um, I chose the places that I wanted to work based off of what I wanted to eat at the time and what I wanted to learn about. And when I was in school, I you know, I literally spent all of my money traveling and on tuition for school. So whatever money that I was making, I was spending on going out to eat. So at that time, you know, I went to like, I would scrape all my money together and I would pay rent. And then I would go to like WD 50 and like eat Wiley's food. And then I would, you know, go to per se, um, or Danielle. And, you know, I spent my money on that. And for me, what I learned out of those, because that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to do fine dining um, when I was in school. And then it shifted. It really shifted. And I was like, okay, but I'm, this isn't what I want to do anymore. And what was it about fine dining that after having those experiences Mm -hmm. turned you off of that being your path? Um, It, you know, I love all of those restaurants. I think that they're brilliant. And I, you know... I probably would want to do something like that further down the road. Um, but for me, what has always been for me, it's been about what starts at the table and that's, what's important. And I wanted, I realized very early on that I wanted to be in a place and have my own restaurant where people would be there multiple times a week Uh and it would feel like a family and it would be like this one great big dinner party in my restaurant and that's what I wanted the feeling to be and you know per se is amazing I can't go there every week you know multiple times a week I don't think a lot of people can afford to to be fair going to your restaurant multiple times a week would also take a dent in your does (laughs) yeah I know it does but but the interesting part is is that 
we have a huge part of our clientele that is in there four to five times a week. Wow. It's insane. It's like, it's great. And I'm so blessed for that because it's like, you know, they're either at the bar, yep. hanging out, having a burger, or pork shoulder, or an oxtail, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, like during the week. And then, you know, on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday night, they're like in there with a six stop ordering the whole menu. That is fantastic. Where are they it's from? It's really exciting. Are they neighbors? neighborhood? It's, it's neighborhood. I mean, they're, you know, they're New Yorkers. And, and, and it's, you know, I, I try to be on the floor like three times a day because I want to know who comes into my restaurant. I want to make them feel welcome. You know, I think you know, hospitality is so important. And, and what I really love about what we do is that it's exciting for me to get to know people and get to know what they want to eat and what they want to drink and, you know, and, and ha- welcome them into our place. So, okay. So when, um, when you got hired, cause you were at Reynard, I was at, I was at Marlowe were- and Sons, I was at diner and then I went to go open up Reynard. So why'd they hire you? Well, at first, I mean, obviously <laughs> as time went on, they yeah. knew you were awesome, but why do you think you got that first job? Um, I, I think probably because I was just there to work. I was there to work you know, and, and it's, it's, you know, it's a trait that I look for, you know, now with people that I hire is that, you know, like keep your head down, you work and you work really hard. And that for me, that was my, you know, that's working hard's never been my issue. It's, like, <laughs> you know, it's like, Wait, it's do, like it's, do you have an issue? What's your issue? You seem sort of flawless. Uh, no, I, I definitely have a lot of flaws. <laughs> I have a lot of flaws. Uh, or what are the challenges? Like when you think about what your yeah. challenges are, what are they for you personally? For me, I think, you know, especially right now is, is, you know, I'm so used to being in the kitchen every single night, being on my floor every single night. So to transition from, from that into running, running a business, you know, cause it's all part of it, but you know, to also now, how do we grow? How do we grow? And that requires me, you know, being out of the kitchen sometimes. And, and it's, you know, I have like separation anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> I have separation anxiety cause I just, I want to be in the kitchen every day. Um, I love this. The, can, can you tell us? So, well, you worked for April Bloomfield, mm-hmm. which I feel must have been incredibly Im- important to you. Yeah. From April, what are the things that you learned that helped you on this path? Yeah. Um, so, she, April, I love. I think she's an incredible woman. And I think for me, what was really important during that time that I worked for her was seeing how businesses run, seeing, you know, learning how to delegate. And which is your new struggle. So which there is you my go. new struggle. <laughs> yeah. It's a new struggle. But, you know, so learning how to delegate and, and, and. So not the cooking so much. Not the cooking so much. No. I, I learned how to cook in, I definitely learned how to cook during my time at Andrew Tarlow's restaurants. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's where I really cut my teeth. That's how I learned how to cook. But working for April was more that, you know, that perfection, that, you know, learning uh, finesse. And that's what what my time there gave me is like the finesse onto the plate and, and, and really just learning how to run a business. And in some, I mean, her restaurant, the spotted pig, mm-hmm. uh, is very meaty. Mm-hmm. Did that help you have, even though you completely believed in your concept, did that help prove your concept to yourself? Like, well, um, no, no, I mean, no, I think it was more about, um, you know, it, 
learning, learning the food costs, learning all of that stuff. Um, you know, that, that was really what that taught me was the business aspect of it. Um, because, you know, coming from the business world, I understand a PNL, I understand, you know, labor costs, I understand all of that, but learning how to manage food costs with a meat heavy menu, that's what that place gave me, um, was a profound understanding of that. So you came to the Beatrice Inn and you came at it at crazy time, mm. which is to say they had just had a horrible review yeah. in the New York Times, and it was known not as a place to no. go for food. Like, if you want to dance on tabletops, awesome. Right. But if you want to go for food, forget it. Go someplace else. Right. Uh, two years later, you bought the restaurant, right. and the restaurant was reviewed by Pete Wells. Got a great review. I want to hear about the day of the review. So, um... You know, I I have a scar on my finger. You see right there. So uh, this, I knew that the review was coming out because we had fa- got the fact check. Um, I thought I was going to have a heart attack, literally. Uh, you know, because I was like, okay, this is like make or break. You know, and um, I couldn't sleep, so I got up really early that maybe at like six that morning I was in there before all of my prep cooks I had taken all of the meat out of the walk-in and I brought it upstairs to the kitchen and they came in they came in at eight and they were like what are you doing here chef I was like, just <laughs> stay out of the kitchen go downstairs clean I don't care what you have to do but like leave me alone and so I sat I sat there from like six in the morning until uh, about 1130 when it when it went online um butchering and braising meat and so the scar on my fingers because I was literally braising oxtail because I was like I just need to just cook right now because I can't talk to anybody um and and I dropped a piece of oxtail oh, and no. beef <laughs> so this is this is my New York it's your star scar this is my scar yeah <laughs> um but yeah you know I I so cooking is overwhelming your, is in your zone which is why yeah to transition to yeah. manage more than cooking yeah. is is yeah, no, it is. Um, but, you know, I that review and that day was it was like everything that I could have asked for. And I, you know, and I, I actually wrote Pete um, after that review came out and, and I thanked him because it, he, you know, his take on that space and it really gave the restaurant a second chance. Um and I think that, you know, in a city, especially especially New York, which is the toughest city in the in the world to cut it in, um, you know, to get to get a singular shot is is amazing in and of itself. And you mean for a restaurant for to be a reviewed restaurant, because just the, to be reviewed. Just to get on the, the radar. Reviewed, yeah. yeah, just to get on the radar, just to get reviewed, just to get that that shot in general is so hard, right? Um, but for a restaurant to get a second shot is amazing. I mean, that's that's incredible. So I do think it was a, it was a tribute to the amount of noise that you made and also the history of mm-hmm. the place. You know, you, there yeah. was a real story for Pete to tell, and then yeah. he got to the food. So yeah. um, that was, was great. It was amazing. And now you you yourself will take a second shot. You'll um, open another restaurant at some point. At some point, yeah. Can you tell us what you're thinking about for what that next restaurant might be? Yeah, you know, I am. Um I'm still kind of working out the working out the kinks and and playing with ideas because for me, you know, I you know clearly like everything that I do is based off of passion and you know what we're passionate about and what makes sense at the time. Um, you know, I, I tend to look uh, less at the at the business side of it and more of what the vision is first, and we can work all the business details out later. Um, 
so for me, I'm, I'm still trying to work it out. I, I do know that I want to do another project in New York, um, for sure. Uh, so whatever that project is, it will definitely be in the city. It'll be in Manhattan. Um, and it will definitely be surrounded, uh, you know, around meat. And, <laughs> you <laughs> so know, you your second thing, you're not going to shock people and suddenly, um, I do a fish concept. Do, no, do, <laughs> <laughs> do a vegetarian restaurant. No, no, like as in never, as in never. Right. Yeah. As in never. Um, but so how often do you eat meat yourself? Oh, every day. Every single day. Every day. Yeah. I, it's, it's, you know, the only time where I'm not really eating meat is when, um, and I'm still eating meat then cause whatever, but, um, when I'm creating menus, when uh-huh. we're writing menus or we're working on new dishes, um, I will go out and I'll have sushi. Okay. I will go out and have sushi because it's very, like, it's pure and it's cleansing. cleansing and it's, you know, what it is. So what's your favorite sushi restaurant in New York? You know, I love Sushi Seki. Okay. Yeah, I love Sushi Seki. I'm, I'm uh, there late night all the time. <laughs> That's It's a gathering spot, so you're yeah. probably not alone in the chef community. Uh, no. <laughs> bump into some friends there. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, one last question. Mm-hmm. On the show, I always ask my guests to pay it forward to another woman to join the uh, Hall of Dames. So is it a woman who's inspired you, and what has she taught you? So um, Rebecca Charles, who owns Pearl Oyster Bar, is probably one of my favorite ladies in the business. Um, She has been, to me, a huge mentor and a supporter, um, you know, since the beginning. And what has she taught you that you haven't learned from others? You know, that woman is in her restaurant every single day. Mm-hmm. She is there. She is kind of like this testament to, you know, to like, she's, she's New York. She's in there, sleeves rolled up, you know, expediting. She is, uh, you know, there talking to guests. She's there, you know, if there's a flood, she's there. She's, her porters aren't there. She's there cleaning it up. <laughs> um, you know, and, and I love that. I love that about her. I love that, um, you know, she, when I was buying the restaurant, she was a huge proponent of, you have to buy this restaurant. You have to buy it. You've got to do it. This makes sense. Um, and why did she say that? Because, because she was like, look, you know, you're not going to get another chance hmm. to get a historic space, you know, in New York. And, and it's true. And, 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 you know, so I think, between she and between Pat Lafreda, it was like, you got to go do this right now. <laughs> you got to go do it. Um, but yeah, I mean, she's, I think she's an amazing, amazing woman. She truly is. Angie, that wraps up Speaking Broadly. Thank you so much for coming for on the me. show. I loved having you. And I want to thank my engineer, David Tatashore. It's awesome. And the audience of the day, Barbara Heller, for coming and joining us. And we'll see you again next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio 
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. 